When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. Yesterday marked the deadliest day in this battle against the coronavirus pandemic with nearly 2,000 deaths. Each day seems to set a new record, and it's not a record any of us thought we would ever see in America as hotspots continue to grow. Though we are seeing some positive signs in terms of hospitalizations and new cases in some of the hottest areas, uh, perhaps that curve is beginning to bend. That's what's causing President Trump to claim victory a bit already and looking ahead to getting the country reopened. Well, I think we can say that we have to be on that downside of that slope and heading to a very strong direction that uh, this thing is gone. Now, we could do it in phases. We can go to some areas, which you know, some areas are much less affected than others. But it would be nice to uh, be able to open with a big bang and open up our country, or certainly most of our country, and I think we're going to do that soon. You look at what's happening. I would say we're ahead of schedule. Now, you hate to say it too loudly because all of a sudden things don't happen. Uh, But uh, I I think we will be sooner rather than later. To understand how this crisis has affected different states and cities in uh, various ways, I have one of the smartest voices with me today, Ron Brownstein. He's a CNN senior political analyst. He is also a writer at The Atlantic. And, And Ron, you look at this country not just politically, but demographically, how it sort of sorts itself, geographically, how the country sorts itself. And one of the things that I have been reading from you in the last several weeks that really strikes me is a really interesting sort of slice of this uh, pandemic is the way in which some of our cities most densely populated are the ones most severely affected. They are also some of the bluest areas politically, some of which are sitting in pretty red states where the governors statewide may not be matching up exactly with how the mayors are dealing with this in in some of the most acute areas. That sort of political dynamic at play, how have you seen that impact the way in which our political leaders are attacking this, this crisis? Yeah, David, it's been a systemic conflict. Uh, you know, I think the big point to me is that so far, 
this pandemic is magnifying rather than alleviating our underlying uh, political and, and social differences and separation. You know, as you know, I believe that the fundamental divide in our politics is essentially between a democratic coalition uh, that is younger, more racially diverse, more white collar, more secular, overwhelmingly concentrated in the nation's largest metro areas, uh, and that is essentially comfortable with the way the country is changing economically, demographically, and culturally, and a Republican coalition uh, that is older, whiter, more blue collar, uh, more more religious. Uh, the share of white Christians, uh, the share of Republicans or white Christians is the same as it was for the country overall in 1984, uh, and, and uh, rooted primarily outside of the major metropolitan areas. And, and this was the way our politics has been evolving for a number of years. I call it the coalition of transformation, the coalition of restoration, all of which has enormously accelerated under Donald Trump, who has strengthened Republicans in the areas uh, that are most uneasy with the way the country is changing and, and, and weakened Republicans further in the Democratic areas. You overlay that on the pandemic. And what do we see? We see that really across the country at this point, uh, all of these divides, I think, have been accentuated. Um, first, uh, it was Democratic governors, by and large, who moved much faster than Republican governors uh, to uh, lock things down in their states, impose strict stay-at-home orders. And in fact, I should go back a step. I mean, really, the first step was, as you know, in the, in the very early polling in, in, in March, Republicans were much more likely than Democrats to say that they thought this was overblown, that they didn't think it was a real risk, that they weren't going to change their their lifestyle. Uh, And that kind of radiated out into the elected officials. And the pattern of the... But even I would, John, even as... Even as Republicans were saying that in some polls, uh, to your to your earlier point, uh, governors, Democratic governors like Jay Inslee right. or Gavin Newsom, they they were already moving. They were moving. The, the Democratic governors clearly, you know, moved first. And as the month went on, and the the, the impact of the disease became more unavoidable and and broader, uh, obviously Republic, several Republican governors came on really in a rush in the in the final week, final days of uh, uh, March and early days of April, but. Um, the actual outbreak of the disease, as you know, so far in really in all states has been concentrated more in the major population centers. And in those states, uh, there's really no state in the country anymore uh, where the major population centers are not trending Democratic, even as the areas outside the metro trend Republican. And so what you saw in a number of the red states, whether it was Florida or Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi or Texas, Arizona, Missouri, sure I'm leaving some out, even South Carolina to some extent, what you saw was Democrats are now, by and large, the mayors of the largest cities in all of those places. Those Democratic mayors were trying to lock down their cities, put down stay-in-place orders earlier. The Republican governors, who are sensitive to a coalition that is based in all of those states, as you know, David, primarily in non-urban areas, small town, ex-urban, rural areas, were reluctant to impose those rules statewide, and you had the you had this systemic conflict in all of those states between the mayors of the big cities who wanted more action, the governors responsive to kind of rural interests who didn't, and the mayors feeling that the lack of statewide rules was undercutting their efforts because they may prevent people from congregating, but one county over, people were congregating and then coming into their areas. So uh, it, it was well, it was a Ron, real. That's indicative. the whole argument, yeah. though, uh, also as to why the president. 
uh, and whether put the constitutional argument aside for a moment, but this call for a nationwide stay at home, because eventually, yes, what you're saying, uh, one town may have stay at home and another town may not. And that wasn't working for those mayors trying to protect their citizens. And that's why they were putting so much pressure on the governors. But it's why I think we've also seen that question to the president of why not a nationwide stay at home, which I guess we're effectively near at now. Absolutely. And that's why you had Anthony Fauci, you know, saying on, on television, I don't understand why there are governors who aren't doing this. The obvious implication of that was, you know, you could just easily say, I don't understand why the federal government isn't doing it. And look, I mean, you are, it's fascinating to me to kind of think about what Trump is projecting as kind of the role of the federal government here, because on the one hand, the U.S., clearly, and is not being the leader of the community of nations. I mean, there's no sense in which the U.S. is marshalling the world uh, to have a unified uh, response to this. And then on, on kind of the other level, he is saying, well, the states have to handle this. We're here kind of as a backstop. You know, we're not we're not going to be we're not standing on a street corner purchasing masks. We're not going to be the ones to provide you uh, the test. You've got to handle it. I mean, he's, he's kind of narrowed the federal role from both ends to a point where it's not clear exactly what it is accepting responsibility for beyond holding uh, a daily briefing. Um, so it, it, it is this kind of step back, but it does reflect, I think, the reality that in even in red states, as Larry Levitt of the Kaiser Family Foundation said to me, even in red states, what you have, or blue states, you have the same dynamic, which is that the health risks are felt most acutely in the big population centers, which are blue, and the economic pain is more of what they are feeling right now anyway in the rural parts of the state that are red. That may change, but right now I think the health effects are still seen as primarily concentrated. For example, I talked to people in Florida who said, look, this is a South Florida problem, or people in Michigan okay, say but it's a Southeast Ron, Michigan you just, problem. You led me perfectly to my next point that I want yeah. to discuss with you, which is that, you know, the the economic situation isn't going to get any better before yes. the health situation improves. I mean, those things are totally tied. And yet what you're describing to me is where the health situation is most acute, the most densely populated areas, these blue cities uh, necessarily – they're also the economic yes. engines uh, across the country. So it is – they are inextricably linked. The, the As you're saying, the tougher health uh, issues inside those cities, I think that – is that not inextricably linked to the economy actually reviving Absolutely. itself? Absolutely. I wrote something last week uh, working with the Brookings Institution uh, Metropolitan Policy Program. I asked them to look at the economic impact of the counties that uh, have – that were dealing with the most cases at that point. And at that point, just – the 50 counties that were uh, dealing with the most uh, coronavirus cases accounted for one third of all the jobs uh, in the country uh, and a higher share of the total national economic output. You're exactly right. The, you know, the idea that you can really get the economy moving again until you have this under control is fanciful because the places that are battling the disease, the most fierce outbreak, uh, outbreak of the disease, are also the places that are now the motors of the American economy as cities have revived in this kind of digital 21st century economy as kind of the locus of innovation and growth. But are you hearing anything from President Trump that suggests he he understands that connection? No, no, no. I, look, I've talked to a number of mayors around the country in the last week, whether it's Los Angeles or Dallas or Columbus, Ohio or Miami or even Oxford, Mississippi, home of the University of Mississippi. And they are all saying that 
in their jurisdictions. This is not a light switch. There's not going to be a VV day, victory over the virus day, like VE day or VJ day in World War II. This is not a light switch that turns back on. It's a dimmer switch in which they will gradually be loosening uh, the the limits on economic uh, activity and social activity. But no one, uh, you know, the mayor of Los Angeles is not expecting people to go back to work on May 15th or June 1st uh, and mass. I mean, they are expecting a a long process of a return to something like normalcy. And as as you know, we're both saying here, as long as that is true in those major cities, uh, it's going to ha- it's going to be hard for the economy to be operating much out of second gear. I mean, this is why Dr. Fauci says it is the virus that is going to determine this timeline of getting the country fully back, uh, operationally back at work and the economy humming again. Ron, I do want to turn just to raw politics here for a moment and and its impact. CNN has a brand new Mm -hmm. poll uh, out today uh, looking at the Biden-Trump race. And one of the things that uh, I think is particularly interesting is that when it comes to, and I think these issues are even more front and center than they otherwise would have been, and they were already front and center, but now even more so. But when it comes to helping the middle class or health care or even dealing with the coronavirus, Joe Biden has enormous leads with uh, registered voters nationally across the country over Donald Trump. The one area we tested where Trump still best Biden, granted by a narrower margin, but I think it's 50 to 46, trust to handle the economy. So even while he has maybe taken a hit on how people are perceiving the Trump economy right now, uh, he still is able, that is the one area where he, in our poll, is, is besting Biden. What do you make of how this moment is impacting the 2020 well, race. you know, it, it, it's hard to know exactly uh, because we are in the middle of it. But it does feel that as during impeachment, you know, views about Trump on this are drifting back as if pulled by a magnetic pole toward the basic divide that we have seen, you know, throughout his presidency and even even as a candidate. What he got 46 percent of the vote in 2016. Republicans got 45 percent of the vote total in the 2018 House elections. Uh, he had a 45 percent, I believe leave approval rating in the exit poll on the 2018 House elections. If you look at the polling that has come out uh, on on how he's handling the coronavirus, it's kind of moved back into that 45, 46, 47 uh, percent range. His job approval is just below that range. Um, I think it's pretty clear there are about 45 percent of the country that is with him uh, almost regardless of what happens, even amid uh, a, you know, a catastrophe like this. On the other hand, I think the fact that, you know, he didn't get that much of a bump even in the rally around the flag moment uh, and that whatever bump he got is already receding shows how difficult it is for him to expand much beyond that. I mean, I feel pretty confident he's going to get somewhere around 45 or 46 percent of the vote of the popular vote in November. Uh, Joe Biden almost almost certainly is going to get more of the popular vote than Donald Trump. And the question is whether that's going to be enough to get him over the top in the Electoral College. I mean, you could imagine a world in which Biden is in a pretty strong position to hold every state Hillary Clinton won, is in a pretty strong position to win back Michigan, maybe a little less strong, but I think more than 50-50 to win back Pennsylvania. But David, as you know, even if you do that, you got to win one more state. And that next state, whether it's Arizona, Wisconsin or Florida, maybe North Carolina, all of them are a lot harder than the first 22. So it kind of feels like no matter what happens to Donald Trump, we end up back in the same place where he is around 45 percent support from the country. But he still has the possibility of winning the Electoral College uh, because Democrats could still, even in that scenario, fall just short in Arizona, Florida and Wisconsin. So let me just mention 
two of those broader six states uh, mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, before you go, Michigan and Florida. You were writing recently, yeah. I think, in, in a really compelling way. They're a story in contrast of just the governors in those states, critical battleground states, obviously, for the presidential election, their relationships with Donald Trump and how the public is perceiving the job they're doing right now. How do those two major battleground states shape up in this right. moment? So I think both sides see six states at the inner core of what will decide the election. You've got Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona across the Sun Belt. You've got Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania across the Rust Belt. And in two of them, Trump's unusually highly charged relationship with the governor, I think, looms uh, over how voters in that state will respond to uh, and and, and process the impact of the coronavirus outbreak. In Michigan, uh, you know, the, the, the effect is most obvious. I mean, Donald Trump has engaged in a very overt feud with the Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, even as the state is dealing with the third largest caseload in the country. And that caseload is centered in the most populous part of the state, southeast Detroit, not only Detroit itself, but those critical suburbs, the white collar suburb of Oakland County, the classic blue collar suburb of Macomb County. And I think there's a broad sense in both parties that Trump, Michigan was already moving against Trump, but he has made it much more complicated uh, by, you know, openly suggesting at the podium of the White House press room that the White House should not return the calls of the governor of Michigan because she hasn't been nice to him. Uh, Her campaign manager said to me, every voter in Michigan is going to see that quote this fall on television, on their computer screen, uh, on radio. Florida is more complicated. Florida is a tougher equation for Democrats. I think heading into the coronavirus outbreak before that, most Democrats felt that it was an uphill climb against Donald Trump. It still might be, but there's a new wild card, which is that Governor DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor, acted to shut down the state later than any other major state governor. And I think there's a broad agreement that one reason he do that, he did that is because he is so close to Trump and he didn't want to embarrass Trump by acting before the president was ready to accept that level of, of response. And I think that increases the exposure of both DeSantis and by extension Trump. If things get very bad in Florida, there will be a lot of questions for the governor. And I think because the governor's actions are seen as, as linked to Trump's views, there will be questions for the president as well. Ron Brownstein, thank you so much for your insights. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. And a special thanks to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps other people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, please do so using the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.